Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 6. And uh, if you are a guest with us, we're really glad you're here. Um, what we do is we work our way through the Scriptures uh, sort of section by section. And this morning we're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. Uh, in the spring of 1998, I was working as a sports reporter with uh, NBC and then uh, later CNN. And I was assigned to cover the Cincinnati Bengals, which was my, my home team, my, my childhood favorite team. So that was uh, not only an honor, it was very exciting. Um, and at that point in the spring, the coaches and executives were, were working out players in preparation for the big NFL draft, which would take place on April 18 and 19. And so um, there, were, there were a number of players who were coming through and they were putting them through uh, the rigors and, and just trying to determine who they would take with their pick, the Bengals that is, in that year's draft. Um, it was no secret who was going to be the number one pick overall, and that was a, um, a baby-faced quarterback by the name of Peyton Manning. Everyone knew he was going to be number one, but after you got past number 10, the 10th pick, there was a, a bit of mystery there. And so, um, again, the Bengals brought in a number of guys, and uh, they ended up deciding on a guy at number 13, a guy by the name of Takeo Spikes, who was, who was an Auburn guy, and some of you may uh, remember his name. He was an inside linebacker who went on to have great success in the NFL. Um, in fact, uh, he lasted 15 seasons. He was one of only seven players uh, at linebackers, that is, to start 200 games in the NFL. And so after he was uh, drafted, I remember interviewing him and just asking him, hearing a little bit of his story and his journey. And first of all, I was fascinated by the guy's physique. He had the most muscular uh, neck that I'd ever seen. Um, just this zero body fat, I mean, this incredible uh, athlete. Um, but what I was most fascinated by was his story, uh, just sort of the, the trials that he had gone through and, and, and his way to the NFL. And I remember asking the, the coaches after the draft, well, why did you choose Takeo Spikes? I mean, what was it about him uh, that caused you to land on him for the 13th pick? And, and they said, you know, of course, we we're impressed with his workouts and, and his play at Auburn. But the, but the selling feature, the number one thing was actually his interview, his intangibles, his character, uh, his resolve, and so on. Well, that was 21 years ago. And, of course, the landscape of sports has changed uh, dramatically. Now everything is done by way of analytics, uh, statistics. Um, it's, a, again, algorithms and, and things are done in a very different way. In the world of sports, statistics rule. But we know that statistics don't always tell the whole story, do they? Especially when it comes to spiritual things. In fact, there may be a ministry that we look at and it seems to be wildly successful and, and maybe that things are going so well they have to actually rent out a, a stadium to, to host all the people there and yet appears to be, by the statistics, a great success. And yet maybe, in God's eyes, it's not because true disciples are not being made. Maybe on the flip side, there's, there are ministries where, by all accounts, the stats say, this is a failure. What a waste of time. The numbers just aren't growing. Things aren't blossoming. And yet, in God's economy, it's a great success. Think about the ministry of those who have gone into unreached areas, unreached people groups. Adoniram Judson uh, spent seven years in Burma, seven years before he saw a single convert. Uh, David Livingston, the, the one who paved the way into the, uh, the continent of Africa, spending much of his time in Malawi and Botswana and Zambia, he spent years, years laboring, investing in people, toiling and 
caring for people, sharing the good news of the gospel years before he saw one person come to faith in Christ. In fact, it was, he only saw one person come to faith and then what would happen after he was gone is God would really expand that ministry. Numbers don't always tell the story. Sometimes the numbers, again, suggest a failed mission when in fact God is doing something that will blossom into an incredible movement. Now Jesus knew this. This is why and when he experiences what, what we're going to see in just a moment, he didn't panic, he didn't throw in the towel. He instead trusted in the redemptive work of God. So here's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see three things. The polarizing impact of the gospel. The most infuriating aspect or point of Jesus' message. And the divine order for understanding spiritual things. So let me read the, the, the passage. And I'll, read, I'll start with verse 59. I'll read the whole thing. John 6, 59 through 71. The word of God reads this way. When many of his disciples, let me start with 59, sorry. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and it was and who it was who would betray him. And he said, "This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father." After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, "Do you want to go away as well?" Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus has just finished his sermon at the synagogue in Capernaum. And immediately someone comes up to confront him on his message. Something that everyone who's ever preached uh, has gone through, although on a different level to be sure. And so these people are listening and, and they determine they don't really like what Jesus has said to them. So he has this sort of post-message uh, exchange. And uh, again, this is not the sort of thing where just a few of Jesus' followers decide, you know, this is not really for us, or they disagree and go in a different direction. This is the event this is the event where Jesus would lose just about everyone. Hundreds, maybe even thousands of people would turn against Jesus. It's really quite shocking when we think about all that they had seen and heard. They'd, they'd watched uh, Jesus feed uh, and been fed themselves by Jesus with just a few items of food. Uh, they had presumably seen Jesus turn water into wine. They had walked along with him. Uh, some had seen him actually walk on water. They'd been in the shadows when Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for some 38 years, they'd seen him do all these things. And then after this message, they say, no, that's enough. Many of his disciples were told, both in verse 60 and verse 66, turned away never to walk with Jesus again. In fact, only the 12 remained apparently, and one of those we just read would turn on Jesus and betray him. And by the way, the, the people... You know, we read this and it's easy to think that maybe what happened is, you know, 
If, so, if, I, if I preach something and someone really disagrees, very few people are going to kind of storm up and angrily accost me. What they're going to do is quietly go and not show up again. And we may think that what happened is these people, they just sort of quietly determined that they're not going to follow Jesus again. But that's actually not, hap- not what happened. The, language, the Greek language suggests they were greatly offended, angry even. When they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? It's not as though they were saying, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. I need to really I need to think on this some more. What they were saying was, he's not going to get away with this. We're not going to let him get away with this. One New Testament scholar argues that the Greek word here, skleros, suggests that the, the message was so scandalous that, that some of these former disciples wanted to come to blows with Jesus. over. They wanted to fight Jesus. They wanted to physically hurt him because of what they had heard. Once followers, they now turned on Jesus with this visceral hatred. Now, here's the first thing I want you to see from this passage, if you're taking notes. The gospel attracts those we'd never expect and often repels those we thought had received it. Now, think about what's going on here. So, we're told that hundreds, thousands of people, the, the, the synagogue, each in that day, most of these uh, Judean uh, cities had a, a local synagogue, and they were, we think about the synagogue, we think it's just a place for formal worship, but the synagogues were actually u- used as sort of community centers, and they, they could house a lot of times many people. And so, all these people turn on Jesus, they decide they no longer uh, want to follow him, and, and yet, the 12, and these are mostly, these are a lot of religious people. And who do we have remaining? The 12, this sort of uneducated, unimpressive group of followers, a few fishermen, a, a political zealot, a, a tax collector, the bottom rung of society for sure. No one expected these men to be gripped with the gospel and then surrender their lives for its advancement. But that's what happens. And yet the religious folks, the synagogue congregation leaders, the well-educated Bible teachers, they are repelled by the message of Jesus. I think there's certainly much we can learn from this. The people that we would never expect to come to Jesus. The people that I say with great shame, I have written off at times. The people that we believe don't have a chance, spiritually speaking. There's no way they're going to turn in faith to Jesus. These are often the ones that God actually draws to himself. The ones who are at their wits end. The, one, the one who, ones who have nowhere to look but up. They have nothing at all to speak of, spiritually speaking, and they know it. And these are the ones that God draws to himself. And it seems the most pious, the most self-reliant, the best behaved are the ones that balk at the message of Jesus. Several years ago at a different church, we did a, a video series called uh, Don't, Don't Underestimate the Gospel. And we featured in that, in that series some of the folks who were part of our congregation um, whom God had miraculously saved and, and out of a variety of lifestyles. And there was a 25-year-old alcoholic who, was a, who lost his job as a high school swimming teacher, instructor, um, because of his alcoholism. God radically brought to saving faith and allowed, enabled him by God's grace to put aside uh, alcohol. Um, there was a, a 50-year-old workaholic who was seeing his own family reduced to shambles because of his, of his insistence on working all the time and not caring for his family. There was a 19-year-old who was, who was enmeshed in this party scene and 
living for pleasure, and that we saw God actually just break down and, and raise up in humility and faith. A 30-something-year-old uh, couple who tried for years to have children and uh, for the longest time were unsuccessful, and, and because of that, they lost faith in God's goodness. And God recaptured their heart by His mercy and His love. It was a, it was a fascinating uh, series, and through these little four-minute uh, vignettes, we we, we told the stories of people that, that God had drawn to Himself in incredible ways. We don't know what God may be doing in someone's life. You know, we, we pray for our friends and we pray for our children, and, and at times it seems like things just aren't working. We don't know what God is doing. He's a million steps ahead of us, according to His infinite wisdom. So we offer the gospel to all, believing that God may do more than we think or imagine, and sometimes he actually stuns us by the people he brings to himself. Now, back to the text, there's a question that certainly pops in our mind when we read this, and, and that is, okay, what happened here? In other words, what caused such a violent reaction? Why did people respond the way that they did? What caused so many people to turn against Jesus? And it could have been a lot of things, really. It could have been his repeated use of the, the I am statements thereby referring to himself with a divine name, calling himself God. That certainly uh, infuriated people. It could have been uh, the fact that he refers to himself as, as you have to eat my body and drink my blood. Of course, as we saw, that, that, that's a rather appalling notion to those who, who have no familiarity with Jesus. It could have been Jesus' statement that he came from heaven. This is what uh, anger the Judean leaders as we saw a couple of weeks ago. So it, it could have been all of those things. And it probably was all of those things. It was a combination of all those things. But I think what was most offensive, what was most offensive was the overall theme of Jesus' bread of life message. And it was this. You have no hope of saving yourself. You are broken, sinful people. In fact, Jesus says to these very same people in verse 19, none of you are obedient. And yet, salvation is, a, is freely available by faith, through faith in me. What's been the overarching theme as we, we, we see Jesus' sermons? It's this, you can't do this. You think you can, but you can't. You can't be good enough. You can't be obedient enough. You, you can't be righteous enough. The only work that counts for anything in terms of God's salvation is the work that God has done in sending His Son all efforts to ingratiate ourselves to God on our own terms will fail. But, Jesus says, if you believe on me, God will take your brokenness and your shame and remove it forever. He will justify you. He will declare you not guilty of all the things you've done, even the things that no one else knows about. But you see, that, that levels the playing field. Because if you have in the audience people who think, okay, I'm really, really righteous, and I'm looking down at everyone around me because of their unrighteousness, this message actually levels the playing field. The crowd wants a solution that they can contribute to. As we saw last week, Jesus is in preaching, he's preaching this incredible message. He says, look, I, you're, you're hungry, and I can fill that hunger. Only I can satisfy your deepest needs. Only I can allay your fears. Only I can give rest to your soul. And what do they do? They raise their hand and say, wait a second. Right in the middle of his sermon. But, 
But what's the work that we're supposed to be doing? Just give us the to-do list. They want a to-do list, and Jesus gives them more of himself. So you want to know what the work is that God requires? Believe. Believe in me, the one that God sent. The people can't stand it, though. Now, here's our second point. The most infuriating and comforting aspect of Jesus' message is that it is an ongoing refrain of grace. The most infuriating and comforting aspect of Jesus' message is that it is an ongoing refrain of grace. It is a message of grace. This is the same one that John said in chapter 1, that, that from whom we receive grace upon grace. Now I say it's infuriating because it makes us feel uneasy, this idea of grace. I mean, bad people getting good things. It just doesn't, it doesn't really resonate with us. Grace makes us want to pump the brakes. Grace takes the control away from us. And we all, on some level, want to be in control, especially when it comes to our own destiny. We believe that we can control it. We can be good enough, at least better than those around us. We can be good enough, at least better than our neighbors to get into heaven. And that certainly was what the Jewish crowd thought. They didn't want to hear that they couldn't save themselves. That was infuriating to them. It's been said that if you want to make people mad, preach law. In other words, tell them what to do. Nobody wants to be told what to do. But if you want to make people really mad, preach grace. Remind them that there's nothing they can do to gain their salvation. It's completely beyond their control. Inform them that everything they have that's good, every aspect of, of their right, their so-called righteousness, is actually from Christ alone and not of their own. You want to make people mad? Yeah, tell them what to do because I don't want to be told what to do. But you want, if you want to make people really mad, tell them there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Everything you have is a free gift. It's, through, it's nothing you've earned. It's nothing you deserve. I know from experience that really ticks people off. I can tell you. People say, look, if you just tell me what I have to do, then I can remain in the driver's seat. That way when I do well, I can expect good things from God. And when I fail, I can brace myself for God's punishment. But don't tell me that bad people, especially people worse than I am, get good things. That I cannot accept. Robert Capon, the recently deceased author and theologian, uh, and there's much that he writes that I disagree with, but I love this. He said, the prayers of many are like this, though they would never say these things. Lord, please restore to us the comfort of merit and demerit. Show us that there's at least something we can do. Tell us that at the end of the day, there will be at least one redeeming card of our very own. Lord, if it is not too much to ask, send us to bed with a few shreds of self-respect upon which we can congratulate ourselves. But whatever you do, do not preach grace. Give us something to do, anything, but spare us the indignity of this indiscriminate acceptance. Indiscriminate acceptance. In other words, God forgives people. Can I be so honest with you? God forgives people that we can't stand when they repent and turn to Him in faith. God forgives people that we really don't believe should get a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance. Whatever it is. And that is infuriating to us. 
God forgives drug addicts when they turn to Him in repentant faith. God forgives school shooters when they turn to Him in repentant faith. God forgives women who have had multiple abortions. God forgives those who have been unfaithful to their spouse several times. God forgives those who have been sinfully divorced. God forgives people who have publicly denied Him. Does anybody remember the name Peter and his denial? God forgives people of all the things that we think we would never do. God delights in forgiving anyone who repents and believes on His Son. There was a... um, You may have read this story if you follow kind of any of the news in the evangelical world. Uh, Joshua Harris was a longtime uh, pastor, actually a megachurch pastor um, at a church in Maryland outside of D.C., a prominent author. He wrote um, several years ago, wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And then uh, later, uh, after he matured a little bit, I Gave Dating a Chance. uh, he, uh, those, are, those are the real titles of his book. But he, he published these books and they sold all kinds of copies. He was a New York Times uh, best-selling author. Well, about two and a half weeks ago on his Instagram account, this is a guy, again, who's pastored. Ma- I've, I've been around Joshua Harris. I've, I've watched him preach. He was a phenomenal preacher. This is a guy who said on his Instagram account about two and a half weeks ago, I'm no longer a Christian. I no longer consider my, myself a Christian. And I watched, you know, in the evangelical world as there are, I read all kinds of articles and responses to this, and there's some really beautiful stuff. Al Mohler wrote a great, uh, a great uh, article, a brief article on this, and there's some really good stuff and, and some really bad stuff. But I think the most memorable thing that I read was actually a two-sentence tweet. And I didn't even recognize the person's name. It was a two-sentence tweet that said, Jesus still loves Joshua Harris and wants him back. He's waiting for him with open arms. And isn't that true? We think, oh, this person is way too far gone. This person has no chance, spiritually speaking. And yet God does the incredible work of bringing those rebels to Himself. There's something about it, though, that just doesn't seem right to us. So it rankles us a little bit, or maybe a lot. But this message of Jesus is also comforting. It means that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace, not even us on our very worst days. God's forgiveness knows no boundaries. You may be thinking, well, I don't, all those descriptions of terrible people and terrible things, that doesn't matter, that doesn't fit me. Maybe none of those descriptions fit you. But you still have countless times loved other things more than you love the God who made you. You still have countless times failed to, to obey Him fully and rightly and perfectly, just like I have. Failed countless times in my heart, with my motives, with my words, with my thoughts, with my actions. Maybe you're haunted by your past and something that you've never shared with anyone else. Or maybe you're beaten down by your current failures. You're in the middle of a sin struggle and you just feel like, how could God be there? How could He still love me? Maybe it's a struggle as a spiritual leader. Maybe it's a struggle in the area of purity. Maybe it's a struggle as a mom or dad. And you think, I'm just absolutely blowing it here. And those failures seem to constantly creep into your mind. Well, remember this, Jesus is there. And if you've trusted in Him, your past has been redeemed and it belongs to Jesus. And your future belongs to Jesus. And your present struggles, in your present struggles, Jesus is there and He delights in forgiving you. He is speaking His approval over you at this very moment to the Father. 
Here's why the crowd gets so angry at Jesus that they want to attack him. Jesus says that God rejects all those who try to get to him on their own terms. And God eagerly forgives all of those who believe on his son. So Jesus says, and look at the last part of verses 61 and 62. Uh, Jesus says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Son of Man ascending here, this phrase actually has a dual meaning. Uh, and on one hand, Jesus is talking about his future ascension, uh, which you know, he'll, he'll ascend into heaven and, and many will witness this event. But it also, in John's gospel, this, this idea of being ascended or being lifted up in John's gospel has a very specific meaning and it's talking about Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Jesus is saying, if you think that my message was offensive, in other words, if you think that what I had to say was really sort of in your face, then he says, wait till you see the way that I gained victory by losing. Wait till you see the way that I'm glorified by dying and being raised again. Wait till you see the way that I, I, I reconcile the world to the Father by taking on the sins of the world. If you think what I had to say upset you, Way do you see me lifted up on a cross? It's so counterintuitive that God would send his son to die for an undeserving people that the apostle Paul would call it the message of the cross foolishness. How could it be that God's son would die for rebels so that they would receive a forgiveness they can never earn? It makes no sense. And because it's foolishness, because it's so counterintuitive, God must enable us to believe. That's why Jesus says again, just like he said previously in the same message, verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. There's that tension again. We saw last week, all who came, all who call on the name of Jesus are given new life. They're made alive. They're born again from above. But for reasons known only to him, the Father only grants some the ability it's not for us to know how or why or what's going on in the mind of God. We just know that whoever believes will be given new life. So what do we do with the, the disappearance of all of these disciples? There's clearly some tension here. But I think there's a simple conclusion that we can reach and that this passage, and I think all the rest of the Scriptures bear witness to this, and that is those who fall away, those who abandon faith in Jesus, demonstrate that they never truly actually believed. Jesus actually makes it clear in this very passage. In fact, he says that very same thing in verse 64. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now it has to be pointed out that the word disciple is a word used very broadly in the Gospels. At the most basic level, it was kind of someone who followed Jesus and, and learned from his teaching. And so this is why you know, Jesus had a lot of disciples. They were called his disciples. John uses that phrase in the passage that we're in. So at the most basic level, a disciple was someone who learned from, from Jesus' teaching. But not every disciple was a genuine disciple. Just like not all faith was actually saving faith. Remember in John 2, we're told this. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because... He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There were plenty of people in Jesus' day who were eager to follow him. In fact, they would actually go to great distances to be around him. They loved to watch what he did, to put on these huge displays. They loved to be fed by him. 
And they actually were listening to him and they were learning from him. But they weren't true disciples. One New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, puts it this way. Such a disciple is not necessarily a Christian. Someone who has savingly trusted in Jesus, sworn allegiance to him, given by the Father to the Son, drawn by the Father and born again by the Spirit. Those people, those who have savingly trusted in Jesus, sworn their allegiance to him, been given by the Father to the Son, drawn by the Father, born again by the Spirit, they will never ultimately fall away because God won't let them fall away. He will keep them. Jesus has made this clear already. We've seen this. We've gone through five and a half chapters of, of John. We've already seen this over and over. Jesus has already said, in fact, in the passage a couple weeks ago, He will not lose any, not even one of the ones the Father has given Him. And then later when we get to John chapter 10, Jesus says, no one can pluck a believer out of the Father's hand. And this is consistent with all of Scriptures, that God keeps those who belong to Him. He enables them by His Spirit to persevere in the faith, not because of their faithfulness, not because of their ingenuity, not because of their goodness, but because of his faithfulness. Now God keeps his own. It's, it's sometimes he does it, uh, I should say all the time, he really does it both immediately and immediately. He does it supernaturally. He also does so by means. God keeps his own through a variety of means. One of those is the ministry of the word, for example. Uh, the fellowship of other believers. God strengthens our faith as we, we hang around other believers through regular Bible intake, as we take in this great story of redemption of which Jesus is the hero, God deepens our faith through prayer, through the practice of the Lord's table. Those are just a few of the ways that God strengthens the faith of His own. However, there are those who show signs of faith early on. Maybe they show all the signs of being a Christian early on, but they never actually turn to Jesus in humble and repentant faith They're excited, but they're not dependent on Jesus. Bible commentary, Matthew Henry, he's got this great uh, sort of single volume commentary, describes this person this way. It is possible that there may be the green blade of confession where yet there is not the root of grace. Theologians call this a transitory faith. Genuine faith recognizes our own brokenness, our own sinfulness, and, and, and actually turns to Jesus in saving faith, trusting in no one else but Him. Transitory faith, which is just a, it's not a term in the Bible, but it's a, it's a theological term which refers those, to those people, that sort of faith that, that has all the indications at the outset. Maybe there's a great deal of enthusiasm. And, and I can about think about people in my own family who had this. They want nothing to do with the things of God. Now, maybe you know people as well that seem to be on fire for Jesus only to absolutely lose all fervor. Transitory faith shows immediate signs and even great enthusiasm at first, but it doesn't last. The same John, the same evangelist, describes this person this way later on. He says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Everyone who goes on ahead, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Again, it helps us to make sense of those heartbreaking and very troubling scenarios in our own life where we see people in our own circles who uh, have fallen away. Maybe they were baptized. Maybe they made professions of faith, but years later they showed no no indication of the love for God, no indication of resting in Christ's righteousness. Now these are 
These are church members in some cases. These are deacons in some cases. These are Sunday school teachers. Dare I say some of these are pastors. All of whom follow Jesus for a while. And maybe they're all fired up for a while. But their faith is not genuine. It's not saving faith. It's not anchored in the true identity and work of Jesus. And such was the case in our immediate context, which ultimately leads to a mass desertion of Jesus. When I was fairly new in ministry, uh, about a year and a half into ministry, this was 2003, I guess I was probably, I was 32 or 33, and I was serving as the associate pastor and co-teacher of a church outside of Chicago, and uh, the senior pastor was getting ready to take uh, a sabbatical, four-month sabbatical uh, to Nairobi, Kenya, where he's going to be doing some writing and teaching and resting. And, um, and so the church was really growing numerically, and a lot of things were going on. And so we had this elders meeting one night, trying to determine what are we going to do when the senior pastor leaves uh, for Nairobi? What are we going to do for those four months? Do we bring somebody else in? Do we bring in a consultant? So we sit down at this meeting, and uh, we just finished praying, and the senior pastor kind of interrupted her. He started the meeting off by saying, which was a surprise to me, he said, I, I recommend that we make John the acting senior pastor while I'm gone. Now, he hadn't said anything to me about this, so I wasn't really ready for that. Um, uh, I was encouraged by his confidence in me and so on, but it was a bit of a surprise to everyone in the room. One of the elders, who was a bit of a smart aleck, uh, piped up and said, well, that's one way to get the church down to a more manageable size. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, he was joking, I think, I hope, but uh, he definitely got a laugh out of it. But ultimately, um, the elders agreed, and so I moved into that role. And, you know, by God's grace, we saw God, saw God do some amazing things. But um, here Jesus has just given this sermon. And as a result, he's gotten his group of disciples down to a more manageable size. It's gone from hundreds, uh, thousands, down to a dozen and Jesus says to the remaining 12, I mean, I, and I think a question that was actually very sincere. He says, are you going to leave me too? Which prompts Peter to make that powerful and memorable statement, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The sequence is important. He doesn't say we have come to know and now we believe. He says, we have believed and come to know. In other words, we believe in order to know. We tend to think it's the other way around. If I could just, if I could just answer all my questions, if I can just, uh, just figure out all, all the, uh, the outlines of God and I, can, and I can put aside all my doubts and I can get it all uh, figured out in a theolo theological system, then I'm going to believe. If I can just address all of my, my doubts, then I'll believe. If I can learn more, if I can learn enough, if I can know enough, I'll believe. But as with so much of the Christian faith, there's a paradox here. As we believe through the Spirit's enablement, we come to know more of the goodness and the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus. We come to understand more of our own need for a Savior and the sufficiency of His cross work. Now this doesn't mean, of course, that we don't have to first consider Jesus and investigate Jesus and 
and try to learn who he is. There's nothing wrong with that. And if you're here this morning and, and you're just kind of investigating Jesus and you don't really know what you believe, we're really glad that you're here. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. And I'm not promoting also some sort of anti-intellectualism that says, look, you, just, you, know, you don't have to learn anything. You just love Jesus. I don't know anything about Jesus. I just know I love him. I'm not saying that at all. I despise that sort of anti-intellectualism which says, look, I don't care to learn or know or grow or anything. I just say I love Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, and I believe this is what Peter is illustrating for us. This is our final point. The divine order for understanding spiritual things is belief, then a growing certainty. Conversion happens when the Holy Spirit works in such a way God draws and the Holy Spirit works to quicken our dead hearts, to to remove the blinders from our eyes, to enable us to see. He makes us alive in a way that that, that leads to to faith and and, and our coming under the authority and lordship of, of Jesus. And when a person believes, the simple act of trusting in who Jesus is, turning from sin to God, then the indwelling Holy Spirit begins to nurture that seed of faith. The Spirit begins to deepen one's understanding. This is why the writer of Hebrews would say it this way, by faith we understand. What we have seen, what we've seen so often, these exchanges between Jesus and His, and his up and down disciples is, it's not, the, it's not the quantity of our faith that's most important. It's not even the quality of our faith that's most important. What's most important is the object of our faith. In whom are we really trusting? In whom are we really believing? Are we believing in ourselves or in Jesus? Are we trusting in our own goodness or in the perfect righteousness of Christ? And we see the disciples, they're, they're mercurial and they're up and down and they're, they're all over the place. And Jesus is constantly moving forward toward them. He's not saying you have to amass a certain uh, a quantity of faith. He's saying believe. What this means for us this morning is God is calling us to believe. And from there, we will see our understanding of God grow. Our knowledge of the grace and love of God, our ability to cope with the unevenness of this fallen world is calling us to believe. If you're in Christ, God's calling you to believe that His work on the cross was enough. You can't supplement it. We don't add anything to it. It was enough. Believe that your sins are forgiven. You've been sent on mission. You don't have to be perfect to, use, to be used by God. You will never be. But He was perfect for you. Believe that you are loved even when you fail and that will move you to worship and joyful and spontaneous obedience. If you're in Christ, God is saying, believe. Believe in what I'm saying to you. Believe in who you are in me. Believe in what I've done. And if you're not in Christ, what God's calling you to do today is not answer every question you've ever had. He's not saying you have to dot every I and cross every T and, 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 and allay every fear. God's calling you to believe. To believe that you are sinful and separated from the God who made you. To believe that outside of Christ you have no hope for eternity. To believe that the love of God is so high and so deep and so wide and so rich that it moved this God to send His Son 
so that you could be adopted into his family, so that you could be declared not guilty, so that you could have a place at the table of the king of the universe who will delight in you through faith in Jesus. When you believe, when we believe, it gives us the ability and the motivation to say, great are you, Lord.